We are in the book of Ruth. If you'd like to open your Bibles, right after Judges, right before 1 Samuel. It's a little book, but it's a big deal, right? Little book, big deal. That's what we're talking about and looking at and considering. And I've been trying to get my own head into the place of Naomi and Ruth and their experience of life. You gotta remember that while all of these stories and all of these teachings are instructive to us, they were life to these people. They were every day. This is how uh, the world was experienced by this Israelite woman who had lost husband and sons, by her daughter-in-law, a Moabitess. This was just life. And when you see it that way, you start to realize how big it really is. Ruth chapter two, which tells us that Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Let's pray. Fathers, we open up the scriptures to this continuation of a seemingly insignificant, small, out of the way, tiny little story in the scheme of world history and world events. Lord, we know that we open up to something big, vast and great. We recognize for all of our lives, Lord, we come to things, we learn things, we realize things, we understand things. But just because we come to a point of understanding doesn't mean that that's when it was, when it had taken place or when you had come up with the idea. Lord, you have planned all of this from the beginning. In the creation of this world, your word tells us that the lamb was already slain, that the plan was already laid in, that there was a purpose behind all of this, so vast and so big, this is not historical, it's eternal. And Lord, that we might be caught up in this is truly astounding. It is humbling and it's overwhelming. Sometimes, Father, I think to the point that we don't believe it. And I ask you to help us believe it this morning. Help us to recognize in humility how small and little our lives are, but how great the plan is that you have invited us into. And I pray everyone would be encouraged by your word. Holy Spirit, would you move among us and, and simply do the work that you've already determined beforehand to do and that you would teach and lead and reveal and comfort and convict and guide us, Lord, into the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 119, verse 130, a favorite verse, actually one that I ran across somewhat recently. The unfolding of your words gives light. I just really like that because that's what we do week in and week out. We're unfolding the word of God. That's what we've been doing on Wednesday nights and talking about the rapture of the church rather than just kind of load it all in on one night, which was my original intention. We are unfolding and we're taking the time to unfold, and I hope you will continue on Wednesday nights with us to do that because the, the proof is in the scriptures, and there's much more that we have to come to that's, that's very exciting and profound. But the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted. Picture a little bird in a nest, 
waiting to be fed. For I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. So I encourage you to, again, read the book of Ruth that way with your little bird mouth open, ready to receive, ready to be filled and fed with much more than just a tiny little story of a couple of women, much more than a, than a little romance from you know, 3,000, 3,200 years ago. Read this story and allow it to unfold page by page without assumptions, without knowledge of where this is going or what we all know is about to happen. Just set that aside. Read from the perspective of Naomi and Ruth. Two widows, Israelite, Gentile, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, and they really don't know what Yahweh is up to. I mean, bit by bit. Remember in the first chapter, Naomi heard that there was bread, that Yahweh was feeding his people back in Israel. So she determines to go back to Bethlehem. That's all she knew. She didn't know the end of the story. She didn't know what would become of all this. And, and even as we go through the story this morning in the second chapter, she's still just figuring it out bit by bit as we go. And that's the best way to read this story. They don't know what Yahweh is up to. How often do you know? In your life, you get up, you go to work, you do the mundane, you do the same thing day after day, and, and, and all of a sudden, maybe, maybe in a moment of revelation or a time of prayer or in a Bible study, you kind of, your, your eyes brighten and you go, whoa, this is something, this is something big, God's doing something, and then you go back into the mundane and the day-to-day. -day. It's like we stick our heads up to breathe every now and then while this amazing thing is taking place. Ruth and Naomi are caught up in the colossal, providential, eternal work of God, and they don't even know. And that is so like life. This is a work the people of Christ ought to be fully aware of and engaged in, and yet, like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, we're just people. We're just going from one day to the next, and we so easily can forget what really matters and what's really going on. Are you aware, ask yourself this morning, am I aware that I am involved in something far greater than myself? Am I aware that I'm involved in something far greater than the experience of my life today? My breakfast to my lunch, I go to church, I see people, I, maybe I'm doing something this afternoon. Are you aware of what's really taking place? An awesome, all history absorbing, reason for our being, epic, eternal, holy agenda. This is huge. It's a plan that took a good 4,000 years of Earth's history for God to unfold, followed by another 2,000 years of harvesting the produce of that great plan. Little lives, big deal, big deal. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, you could say to Naomi first, but also to Ruth. That's interesting. What a coincidence. This is a story about a Jew and a Gentile. <laughs> and how this comes together, a story of insiders and outsiders. And salvation is a call to both. Charles Spurgeon said, never lose heart in the power of the gospel. 
I really like that. What a great thought. Never lose heart in the power of the gospel, that even when life is static or mundane, the power of the gospel is at work in me and through me, which is so much bigger than me. Never lose sight of the power of the gospel. Now, I've already mentioned a couple times Wednesday night, we're talking about the rapture of the church. And I said something this Wednesday night, and I wanna repeat it to you right now, and that is that the rapture of the church is not a fringe teaching. It is our resurrection. We need to understand that. Then when we talk about the rapture, we're, t- we're simply talking about the moment of our resurrection, the moment that our salvation is fully realized. That twinkling of an eye in which the good work that he began in us will finally be perfected. That's the rapture of the church. It's not two separate things. Well, I I know I'm gonna be resurrected, but I'm not sure I believe in the rapture. It's the same thing. It is that moment where our resurrection is realized. Luke 21, 24 tells us something. It gives us an indication of when the rapture is gonna take place. Now, I hinted at this last couple of Wednesdays I said, I'm gonna tell you when it's gonna take place, so you might wanna jot this down. It comes at the end of the harvest. That's as specific as I can get. It comes at the end of the harvest. Luke 21, 24, they, speaking of Israel, Jesus said, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled until they're fulfilled. That's the end of the harvest. Romans eleven twenty five. 25, Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Naomi's people on hold as the fullness of Ruth's people comes in. The fullness of the Gentiles, that's harvest time. Harvest time, times of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles is harvest time in the almanac of history. And it's so beautiful that this little story of this Jew and this Gentile is set at the harvest. Chapter one, Naomi leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab. There she experiences dryness and dullness and famine and death. They left Israel to go get food and they experienced worse in Moab. She and Ruth then head back to Israel. And I'm just summing up chapter one briefly here, but they arrive as you finish the last chapter at harvest time. Now I need to make a correction over something I said last week. And I, you know, sometimes when you got a lot of words flying out of your mouth, you go back later and go, oh no, that's not what I meant. So let me correct something here. The feast that celebrates the barley harvest, so the very last verse of chapter one, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The feast that celebrates that is Reshit. I said Shavuot last week, it's not Shavuot, it's Reshit. The barley harvest comes first because barley uh, springs up faster than wheat does. And the two often planted at the same time, the barley would be harvested first. The barley harvest is celebrated by the Jewish feast of Reshit, which is first fruits. So first fruits is early in the spring and they celebrate the barley harvest. But of course, the barley harvest continues 
beyond first fruits because first fruits is just the bringing the first of that harvest, but the harvest continues and then the wheat harvest picks up and the wheat harvest, the wheat harvest is celebrated at Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So we go from Reshith, first fruits, all the way to Shavuot, that's 50 days, seven weeks plus a day, from the one to the other. The harvest begins before Reshith, runs through Reshith, runs all the way until Shavuot, and then the wheat harvest actually continues further after that. Again, verse 22 of chapter one, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Look at verse um, 23 of chapter two. She stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So this is a springtime romance. It falls right here between, again, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. These two kind of bookend or frame the story for us. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 20. It says, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What is the resurrection? It's the rapture. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But Paul clarifies, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming, and it follows the feast. The feast of first fruits is first, which makes sense if you think about it. First fruits. Feast of first fruits. Christ is the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. After that, what happened after that? Shavuot, Pentecost, the church is born. The first fruits and then the rest of the church that would be resurrected, will be resurrected in the name of Jesus. I love the scriptures. Rashid coincided with the very day of Jesus' resurrection. The Jewish people in, in Jerusalem that morning got up to celebrate first fruits and found the talk about town was Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. On first fruits, Shavuot coincides with the beginning of those who are Christ at his coming, Pentecost. So the Lord knows what he's doing. This plan has been going on since before the foundation of the world. Now, let me just be clear. Some of you may be uh, barley awake this morning. Your eyes may yet be a bit grainy. I didn't stalk you this morning. <laughs> but if you've got ears to hear... Listen up, it is God's desire, it is God's desire to receive the harvest to the very last gleaning. He will take anyone who will cry out, those who will speak, who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that's his plan, that's the one that was laid in from the beginning, that's always been the plan. Jesus says in Mark chapter four, verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, 
How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Harvest time, the times of the Gentiles fulfilled. The end of all these things. Jesus said in John 4, 35, and this was 2,000 years ago, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for the harvest. Jesus Christ, the first fruit, says the harvest has begun. And that's the times of the Gentiles. And that has been the church age of the last 2,000 years. Ruth is the prophetic revelation of the harvest. That underneath this beautiful budding romance, there is revelation. So let's continue unfolding the story. We'll take one more page this morning. We're gonna go through chapter two and I'm gonna give you five points to follow through and just let the word of God teach us. We begin with point number one, a kindred friend. A kindred friend Verse one, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Enter Boaz. First time we hear his name in the story, he comes into play now, and he is introduced with a surprising amount of information all at once. We know, first of all, that he's Naomi's friend. He's Naomi's friend, not Ruth's, not yet. But verse one literally reads, Naomi had a friend. Now, Naomi had a friend of her husband. If you see kinsman, you might wanna jump the gun. If you're a Bible student and you know the phrase, kinsman, redeemer, we'll get there, but that's not this word. That's not the word in the Hebrew that's used here. The word that's used for kinsman is meyudah or modah. Meudah is, is actually the, the word in this context, but it's from that root word, and it means a friend or a relative. A friend or a relative. Twice we're told in both verses one and verse three that he is of the family or of the clan of Elimelech. So he's related to Elimelech. Naomi is related to Elimelech by marriage, so she's married into this clan. Naomi herself is of Judah, but she's of a different clan, so she marries into the clan of Elimelech and into the clan where Elimelech, Elimelech and, and Boaz, perhaps they're, they're brothers or cousins, but they're both of that same clan. So she is only related to him directly by marriage, and the Bible describes Boaz as a friend of Naomi, a friend of Naomi. He's related by marriage, but as we're gonna see, he's also Naomi's friend. And just keep that under your belts, because I think that's really interesting. Secondly, he's got an impressive reputation. He is a man, we're told in the scriptures, of great wealth, but he's not just a rich guy. In fact, the phrase great wealth here, I, I, I don't know why sometimes, I, I'm still trying to learn and figure this out myself, why do the translators make certain choices, word choices? A man of great wealth, the phrase here, literally in the Hebrew, and this is why we go to the Hebrew, this is why I look it up, it's gibor chayel. And gibor chayel, gibor, if you've heard the word gibor, it's mighty one, mighty one, gibor, el gibor, God the mighty one. 
that's often used to describe the Lord himself. But Gibor speaks of a mighty man, a mighty one, and Chayil speaks of valor. So Boaz, not just a rich guy, he is a mighty man of valor. That's important. The phrase that Gibor Chayil, and it's used several times in the scriptures, the phrase most often translates war hero. Boaz is a war hero. Now, we don't know why or, or what battles he fought or, or where he, he attained this, this valorous uh, perspective or place, but we know that, that Boaz is this Gabor Chael. Maybe, maybe he took part in the battles of the taking of the land as a man of, of Judah fighting in that area. Maybe the battles were more recent. Maybe that Boaz was fighting against the Philistines. We don't know. But what we start to understand right with the very first verse is this friend of Naomi is a man, as we see through the rest of the story, with great strength of character and heroic chivalry. I like this guy. Boaz is a man of great character in the Bible. He's the only person in the Bible with the name Boaz, by the way. There are no other Boazes or Boes. I don't know what you, how, you know, make that plural. Boazim. <laughs> There's only one Boaz, and, and this is it. He's the only one. Now, we do see the name Boaz again in other places. In fact, Solomon takes the name Boaz and uses it for one of the two pillars of the temple. Do you recall that? That, that one of the pillars is named uh, in, in Jerusalem is Yakin, which means established. And then that, that's the right pillar. And then the, the, the left pillar he set up, 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 21, was called Boaz. Yakin and Boaz. Solomon named the pillars in front of the temple. Why? Yakin means established. Boaz means strength. The strength and established. You know, that's that picture of the pillars holding up the front nave of the temple. By the way, I just got a rabbit trail on that for a second. Revelation 3.12 Jesus said, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. That's one of those pictures in scripture that may be hard to understand. I'm gonna be a pillar? Like for all eternity, this is, you know, I'm, an, I'm not sure I wanna be a, a full-on overcomer because I'm just, what? So what does he mean I'll make him a pillar of my God. And if you're thinking pillar and thinking temple, you're thinking established and strong. He is established in the strength of the Lord. Overcomers are not gonna be homebodies and they're not gonna be hostages. They're going to be strong and established in the Lord. So Boaz is used to speak of that pillar, that pillar of strength. We even use the phrase, a pillar of strength. We get that from the name Boaz. However, However, the Hebrew name of Boaz in the book of Ruth comes from a different Hebrew root than the Boaz of the pillar. So it doesn't mean strength. It actually comes from the Hebrew root word Baaz, and we understand this now that Boaz actually means lively, spirited, or fleet-footed. I like that, fleet-footed. Maybe he has a little extra pep in his step, huh, Jake? <laughs> An extra, I don't know, extra hitch in his giddy up, a little more bounce for the ounce. He, he, this guy is fleet-footed and spirited and, and lively. There's something to the name. And I just suggest to you that 
Boaz is not a dull egg. He's not some boring dude. He is a lively, spirited, upbeat man of good character and influence and reputation. And when you put that together and start to think about the kind of person Boaz was, ladies, you might ask the question, why is this guy not yet married? And we even see in the story, he's probably a bit older than Ruth because he's gonna refer to her as my daughter, which an older man would refer to a younger woman that way. And so, so I'm, you know, if he's such a good guy, and there's so much positive about Boaz, why isn't he married? Because Yahweh's plan is yet unfolding. So we gotta stop thinking little. Well, he hasn't met the right woman yet. No, Yahweh's plan is at work. There's something bigger in play. And so we move from a kindred friend to number two, a keepsake reminder. A keepsake reminder, verse two. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. First of all, notice that it's Ruth the Moabitess. This is even after affirming Yahweh as her God. She's still Ruth the Moabitess. She is never called Ruth the Jewess or Ruth the Israelite. Ruth remains a picture of the outside in, of the outsider brought in, made part. Ruth herself is a sweet, simple keepsake of those who are grafted in. A keepsake reminder of you and of me, fellow Gentiles anyway, those who are grafted into the rich root of the olive tree which is Israel, Paul describes it that way. Romans 11, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, any wild olives among us? Yeah, that's me. Uh, a wild olive, if you were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And Ruth is a keepsake reminder that we are supported by the root. Ruth reminds me of the root. <laughs> I love the little word place. If you're in Israel, you know every single place you go, there are tourist t-shirts. I mean, they're available everywhere. In the most backwater places you wouldn't expect, you can find tourist t-shirts. They know who's coming to the land. They're very wise that way, and these t-shirts are everywhere, and if you find it in one shop, you're gonna find it in another. It's the same two or three companies that make all the same t-shirts, and there's one particular t-shirt several in our fellowship have picked up over the years, and it says, the root supports you. The root supports you. Thing is, Israel's not the root. Israel's never been the root. Israel is the natural branches of the olive tree. Remember, that's what Paul said. If some of the branches are broken off and you are grafted in, they can be grafted back in. Speaking of the branches, Israel is not the root. Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. That is the one that came before Jesse, from whom Jesse came who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. And if you're wondering who that is, Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. 
I am the root. And the descendant of David. I came before, I came after. I am the bright and morning star. So if Naomi in the story represents Israel, and she does, Ruth represents outsider Gentiles grafted in to the root who is Messiah. This whole story is a profound picture of what God has done. And by, by the way, notice here who is serving whom. Verse two again, we see Ruth say, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she, that is Naomi says, go my daughter. Who is serving whom here? Do you understand the picture? Get this with me. It is Ruth serving Naomi. And I see in that a picture of the church serving Israel. If this picture holds up and, and is true, and I believe it is, then we are the bond servants who are going after the one in whose sight we have found favor, in whose sight we have found grace, and we do so, we go into the field, we're in the harvest, we're workers of the harvest, like Ruth is going to be, following after the one in whom we have found favor, that is Jesus, but we're doing so in part out of love and concern for Naomi, Israel. This is not just a sales point, by the way, for our tours of Israel. I keep going back to Israel because I love the Jewish people. Because I think as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called in part, this is not our full calling, our, our calling is the Great Commission, but part of that calling is to love and care for the people of Israel. Even agnostic Jews, even agnostic Jews, still chosen. God's still got a plan in play. This is still going to result in a marvelous grafting in of the Gentiles and a regrafting in of broken branches. The plan is big, my friends. Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus said, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Matthew 25, by the way, in that story of the sheep and the goats, Jesus is doing the judgment of nations and talking about which nations are going to be included in the millennial kingdom based on how they treated these brothers of mine, he says. Who are Jesus' brothers? Well, Jesus being a Jew, that would be Israel. So our care for, our love for, our concern for, our interest in Israel is part of our Christianity, isn't it stunning that the church for so many centuries embraced replacement theology and the booting out of Israel in God's plan? It's not biblical. Ruth, by the way, here, is not going out to harvest a husband. You might see this and go, oh, uh, she wants to glean after one in whose side they may find favor. Oh, so she's looking for a hubby. No, she's not. You're reading ahead in the story. At this point, she's just hoping to find favor with the master of a field to allow her to work in the field, to allow her a position of, of picking up after the workers of said field. And in fact, what she's speaking of is food for herself and for Naomi. This is God's welfare program. Let me go stand in the welfare line is what Ruth is saying. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 19, pop over there just for a second, back a few verse, uh, books to the left. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10. 
Actually, look at verse nine. Leviticus 19, verse nine. In Torah law, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So that's the plan. That's what you do. If you are impoverished in Israel, you can go into the fields and you can follow the workers and whatever's fallen on the ground or whatever is left over, that is yours. And God said, don't glean to the edge of the field. Leave the edges for those in poverty. Leave it so that they can find work Notice that, this is a work program. <laughs> they can work for it, they can receive food, and they can survive, and this is God's way of caring for needy people. And by the way, not only needy people, verse 10 says, you shall leave them for the needy, that would be Naomi, she would be needy at this time, and for the stranger or foreigner, that would be Ruth. You could say God's intentional plan in all of Torah, those verses and that intention of the welfare program, he knew Ruth and Naomi were gonna need to eat. And everyone that Ruth and Naomi would later represent. How did Ruth know about this? How did Ruth, a, a Moabite girl, know about God's welfare plan and even tell Naomi, hey, let me go glean in the field, let me do this? Well, Naomi told her. How can Ruth really know what she's supposed to do unless Naomi tells her. Why are you guys studying through the Hebrew scriptures? Well, we're, we're, we're learning from Naomi. <laughs> we're allowing Israel to teach us, the Lord teaching us through the Hebrew scriptures so that we understand the New Testament as well. But Naomi must have told Ruth, and I think looking at verse two, taking away the knowledge of the rest of the story and what's about to happen, just looking at it in context, that Naomi was getting ready to go glean in the field because she knew that's what you gotta do. And she and Ruth needed to eat. And so she's preparing to glean in the fields herself, but Ruth won't allow Naomi the disgrace of having to go glean as a pauper in the fields of her hometown. Now I'm reading into the text, I, I confess that. But I see in Ruth an unselfish keepsake truly a reminder of what Christians can and ought to be. No, no, you stay home, Naomi. I'll go work the field. Let me go work for you, and I'll bring food back to us. Well, verse three, so she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. I love the way this reads. She happened to come. It's even more obvious in the Hebrew, it reads, she chanced, chanced upon his field. <laughs> she happened by happenstance to come upon his field. It is so ironic, and it's the writer's ironic nod to God's purposeful unfolding plan. Isaiah 46, 11, my purpose will be established, the Lord says, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You realize that salvation is God's intention, right? That as we've been saying, it's the plan that he laid in. It's not your plan, it's not my plan, it's his. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So what? So Apollos, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, others worked early on at the beginning of, of, the, of the harvest. Guess what our job is? Reapers. We're here to reap. That's our calling to reap in the field. We don't even plant or water anymore. That's been done. We're just reaping. This is harvest time. It's harvest time. And if someone chance chances or happens to haplessly wander into your corner of the field, good news. All you gotta do is glean. What are you talking about, Rick? Listen to me. Too many Christians are afraid of the whole idea of evangelism. All we gotta do is glean what God has already done. Your job is not to try and stir it up. Your job is not to force people into believing something or to cajole them into coming along. Your job is simply to be there to pick up the grain, to glean in the field. And, and I'm telling you this because this is, this is confidence for me, that this is not my plan in place. This is God's plan. All I gotta do is be there. I was just talking with Margaret this morning. I just, Margaret, I just love you. She's such a sweetheart. Margaret was talking about meeting with a cousin, right? And, and talking to a cousin just over the weekend. And he started talking about death. And she goes, I don't know what happened. I just started talking about Jesus. You know what I mean? She just went into, that's it. Margaret was in the field. She's just in the field. God taps this guy's heart. Why don't you think about death and your own demise? <laughs> and Margaret was just there to talk. And we prayed for this young man. And that's our call, that's our role. Just be in the field, just glean. Don't worry about planting, don't worry about watering, don't worry about doing all the things that, oh, I've got, but I've got to know more. Just, just go glean. Just be there, keep your eyes open. God's gonna open a window for you to glean. Verse four, and at this point, we're gonna be here all day. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, may Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, may Yahweh bless you. Important verse. Because in this moment, we first hear the very first words out of Boaz's mouth, may Yahweh, may Yahweh. Do you realize that because of this verse, we now know that even in the unruly times of the guardians, there were believing Israelites. There were still a faithful people. There was still a faithful remnant of people who called on the name of the Lord, used the name of the Lord, referred to one another and blessed one another in the name of the Lord. I point that out because even when we think the statistics and the numbers are bleak for the church, speak the name, share the name, bless in the name, use the name of the Lord, speak Jesus because it may look bad as it did in those days, in the days of the judges, but the beauty of this little story of Ruth is it's taking place in this little capsule almost. While all this ugliness is taking place, and we spent the last several weeks studying through the judges, but right here we see a picture of faithfulness of people who still are speaking the name of the Lord. My prayer is that will be you, that will be me. Oh, the statistics look bad for the church in America. Speak the name of Jesus. You just keep blessing people in the name of Jesus. John 14, 26 gives something else that I think is important. Jesus says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. 
So again, just glean, man. Just speak the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's got the info that you need to give. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, Jesus says, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're not gonna be able to help but to speak the name of Jesus as my sister Margaret did this weekend. It's very simple. Margaret, what you shared with me is a little story. Like big deal in the scheme of this week. No, it is a big deal. Because a simple servant of Jesus spoke the name. That's what we do. By the way, speaking of the Holy Spirit, watch this. Continuing on, verse five, then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? He's noticed Ruth. The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Number three in your notes, a kind of the spirit. A kind of the spirit. Note that this guy is the servant in charge of the reapers. We have a servant in charge of the reapers, the Holy Spirit of the living God. We being the reapers, he being the servant, the helper, the one who comes alongside. Among all the cast of, of Ruth, this servant reminds us of the Holy Spirit who Jesus gave charge to over the, hel over the, the reapers today. John 16, 14, Jesus said, he will glorify me. He will take of mine and will disclose to you all things that the Father has is mine. Therefore, or all things the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose to you. Verse seven. And she said, please let me glean uh, and gather after the reapers among the sheep. So the servant is still talking to Boaz here. And he says, thus she came and she's remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. And then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Let them do the reaping work first. Don't, don't follow like a pauper. You let them do the reaping first and then go after them. Indeed, he says, I have commanded the servants not to touch you, and when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. And that's, by the way, what we do when we get thirsty. We go to the spirit of the living God, and we drink the water jars of the living water, and we continue on in the reaping. But Boaz is showing such kindness. In fact, number four in your notes, a kindness given. And watch Boaz through the rest of the chapter, a kindness given. Verse 10, then she, that is Ruth, fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And it's another word play. Take notice and foreigner share the same root word. Boaz would have caught this, even as Ruth is speaking kind of dancing, there's a little bit of the romantic dance here, although I don't think romantic yet. She says, how could you take notice of me, hakire, which is to take notice, a foreigner, which is no kriyah, which means an unnoticed one. So it's not the normal word that's used for foreigner or stranger here, it is an unnoticed one. How is it that you notice me, an unnoticed one, is what she's saying. 
It's a sweet little wordplay. Ruth really wants to know, how is it that you recognize the unrecognized? How do you see me when I am so unseen? That's, that's what Boaz does. That's what our Boaz does. That's what Jesus does. He notices the unnoticed ones. He pays attention to those to whom no one else is paying attention. You need proof? How about Nathaniel under the fig tree, John 1, 48? How about the woman who touched the fringe of his garment in the midst of a massive crowd, Luke 8, 45? Or the little old lady who plunked her two last copper lepta into the temple treasury? No one else saw that. Bible tells us Jesus saw that and he marveled. He calls the apostles around and says, guys, come here, come here, come here. Look at this, look at this. I've told you before, it's an indication that Jesus watches us give. He's watching from the corner as all the rich people are coming up and dropping, plunking their money into the temple treasury, probably making a big show of it, and this little old woman comes in and drops in the last two cents that she has. And by the way, the copper lepta was, I mean, it's barely even a coin. It's like right now, we're all wondering why we still have pennies. Well, this was the copper lepta. And she comes in and drops it in, and Jesus says, that's the last that she had to live on. She gave everything. She gave more than anybody else did. But it's such a precious story, not because it convicts us with our giving and tithing and offering. It's a precious story because Jesus saw what nobody else saw. He's the Boaz who notices the unnoticed ones. What about Zacchaeus up a tree? No one else saw Zacchaeus up there trying to get a good look at Jesus, that wee little man. But Luke 19 verse nine says, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus notices the unnoticed with kindness. And so we see this kindness given even in the character of Boaz himself. Continue on, verse 11. Boaz said to her, she says, how do you take notice of me? How are you aware of me? He says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. This guy's dialed in. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people you did not previously know. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. This interplay between Ruth and Boaz, Boaz and Ruth is so precious. He he sees her and he's already, before he recognizes this is that Ruth in his fields that day, he's already aware of her. He is already impressed by her. He is impressed, sisters, listen, He is impressed by the quality of Ruth and not by her looks or her latest hairstyle or her dress or her charm or her beauty. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And Boaz praises Ruth in this moment because of the work of her hand. That is because of what she has done He is so moved, he's so impressed. Ladies, it is really tough being a man to give advice to a woman. 
guys, I would not recommend that you do this. So, but don't take it from me. Sisters, take it from the spirit of the living God. There is a quality in the feminine that is so pleasing to him. And if you wanna be pleasing to him, you read the Proverbs 31 woman and you say, let me be like that. Or you read what Peter said, he was bold. Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse four, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That's God's admonition to you, dear sisters, <clears throat> not mine. Verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. I'm not even one of your servants, but you're treating me better than I should be treated. And literally she says, when she says you have spoken kindly to me, she says you've spoken to my heart. You've spoken to my heart. Now, listen, <clears throat> the spark of interest here is I don't believe yet romantic. Again, we read into the story. Oh, they're falling in love. Now that's later. Right now, there's just a two-way uh, respect of character and kindness between Ruth and Boaz. He's looking at her and he's seeing this is a special gal who would do what she's done. And she's looking at him saying, this is a kind man who would take notice of me, but I don't think there's a spark of romance there yet. And I'll show you why in just a minute, verse 13. Or verse, sorry, 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. You did not do this with the gleaners. The gleaners were the poor, the paupers, the impoverished. They were the ones who came in later and kind of worked the edges of the field and then disappeared into the night. He invites her to mealtime. Come, come here, come sit. This is the master of the field and probably of many fields. And, she, and he's saying, come, come sit that you may eat. And even more so, it says, so she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. He served her is a great translation there. It's literally he handed it to her. And in fact, it even may mean more than that. It, it might mean he piled up roasted grain for her. Just scooped it up and gave her a, a plateful more than she could possibly eat, as you notice, and she had some left. She had leftovers. She had a doggy bag. Why, Naomi? Naomi, what is Boaz doing? He is not just feeding Ruth. He's sending home food for Naomi. Because the grain that, that Ruth is, is going to be harvesting, the work that she's doing that she will bring home is gonna need some work to make it edible. I mean, you, can, you could eat it, you can, you can peel the head off and eat it, but it's not as good. The roasted grain or, or what they would do with the grain to make bread out of it and other food has yet to be done. But here he has roasted grain, he says, take home food to Naomi. He's not piling on because he says, here is a godly woman and a glutton. He's piling on because he wants Ruth to have more than enough. That's Boaz's kind intention. This is what the true master does. Luke 12, 37 tells us, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself and have them recline and will come up and wait on them. So we see yet another picture in Boaz of our master of Jesus. You know, I have long been amazed by that verse. 
Luke 12, 37. I've long been amazed at the fact that when the harvest is done and when he finds us on the alert, which is why we're talking about the rapture on Wednesday night, when he finds us alert and ready and waiting for him, he has us reclined at the table. Come here, come here and sit down. And he serves us. And I read that and, and I, I, have, I remember the first time it really hit me what that was talking about and how overwhelming that is. Almost unthinkable that Jesus would serve me at the table Almost to the point where we're like, no, 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 that's, that's not right. Not you, Jesus. But that's what he says. You're gonna recline, I'm gonna serve. The master will come up and serve. And that's been impressive, but why? Why should that impress us when being served is not nearly as impressive to God as the one who serves? That's the whole nature of the way God functions. We see it in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each serving the other, each honoring the other. We see that in the way God has served humanity, coming down, though he be God and we be peons, he still is coming down and serving us in the person of Jesus who said, Luke 22, 27, who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Now, humanly speaking, he says, is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as one who serves. Don't be surprised when at the end of it all, you recline at the table and Jesus is standing there offering you food because that's greatness. That's the heart of God. And as Christians, we don't serve to prove ourselves to God. We serve because it makes us more like Jesus. You never look more like God than when you serve. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. That's right in the middle of the field, not out on the edges, right in the middle among all the good stuff. Let her glean even among the sheaves. And he says, and do not insult her. That is, don't, no cat calls, no whistling after her. That's the first indication that she might be kind of cute. <laughs> Verse 16, and you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles. That's already bundle grain. Leave it behind that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Let her do the work. Watch this. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. This Ruth is a hard worker. And it was about an ephah of barley. Oh, okay, so she got a day's wage. No, 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 no. An ephah equates to roughly 29 pounds this is a huge draw. This is actually unthinkable in the day. But, but Boaz says, leave her some, leave her extra, leave her the good stuff. And Ruth spends one day and brings in this remarkable haul that in the day would have amounted to a month's wages working in one day. And it's all due to two things. It is due, number one, to the generosity of Boaz, and number two, to the work ethic of Ruth. We see both of these joining together. You realize that that is the dynamic of grace during this harvest time? That it is the generosity of God and the work ethic of his followers that gives the yield? I'm not talking about working for salvation. You have your salvation. I'm talking about working for the kingdom. 
and being effective for God in the kingdom. And we even have New Testament scripture that describes exactly what you see. Boaz is generous, Ruth does the work, and the yield is remarkable. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, now he who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's the generosity of Boaz. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. That's the work of Ruth. So we're, we're part of this thing. I, come back to what I said at the beginning. We're caught up in this huge, amazing thing in the world. The entire purpose for our being. We get to be part of the plan of God. And my part may seem little. Okay, but it may yield 29 pounds of grain. Just do the work. Just reap the field. Just be there for Jesus. He will supply all that we need and it's gonna produce thanksgiving untold. Verse 18. So she took it up and she went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took out and gave Naomi what she had left over. That's the, the, the left after she was satisfied lunch. So here's dinner, by the way, on top of the 29 pounds of grain. And her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. Took notice, same, same word, by the way, that Ruth said when she said, why would you take notice of me, one who's unnoticed? Now Naomi repeats that same word. Who took notice of you? And may he... Be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, well, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Hold it right there, wait a minute. This is a Hebrew mindset. His kindness to the living and to the dead? The living, Naomi and Ruth, the dead. Well, that would be Elimelech and Machlan. We find out later, by the way, of Machlan and Kilion that Machlan was Ruth's husband. You'll find that out in chapter four. These two men are dead, and yet Naomi, with that broader Hebraic way of thinking, says his kindness is to us and to my former husband, my past husband, and your past husband. He's being kind to our entire family. I, something about the Hebrew mindset we need to grasp is it is always broader than we think. They think back further and forward further, further than the typical, typical American mindset, which is why I've told you in the past that a Jewish person looks not at a murder as the loss of life, but as the loss of an entire generation of all the people that would have lived had that person not been killed. It's a much broader thinking. And, and so this kindness to Ruth and Naomi is both to the two of the women who are living and also to Elimelech, or Elimelech and Machlan who are dead. And it does remind me that little kindnesses reach much further than we think. They have the ability to go much further. Romans 2 verse four, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Little kindnesses, you might be, you might be in the field as you reap, 
you might express the kindness of God to someone and not even think twice about it and go on reaping elsewhere and it leads someone to repentance. Titus chapter three, verse four, when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He reached right into and pulled us out of death itself. God is kind to the living and the dead. Guess what? Now I'm the living. Before I came to Jesus, I was the dead. And that is the kindness of God. Well, verse 20 continuing. Again, Naomi said, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. And this is the hinge verse of the entire story. This is the heart of the story. This is the seminal word in the book of Ruth. But before I tell you what the seminal word is, I gotta tell you another word because it's the first word here used to describe Boaz. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. And the word our relative is karov, which means he is our near one. He is our near one. This is not yet the defining word, but he is our karav, our, our near one, our close one. We would say, oh, this is what Naomi's saying. Oh, he is near and dear. Boaz, he is near and dear to us. This is Naomi speaking fondly of her friend. And for the first time, she recognizes a potentially blessed harvest when all of a sudden she says, he is one of our closest relatives. He is our goel, our kinsman redeemer. It's like the spark of truth hits her. Wait a minute. My friend, near and dear, and he's the goel. Number five in your notes, the kinsman redeemer. Until now in the scriptures, we have only really known this word to be used in the role of the blood avenger, the goel. The goel of Israel who had the right and the responsibility as a protector of the family to avenge the loss of life. And that's the goel, but, but the same family protector was assigned the role of redeeming family members who have been enslaved because of perhaps poverty, and of buying back land that was lost so that the inheritance would remain in the family. That's the goel. And, and as you read this little section of, of Ruth and, and Naomi, they're, they're huddled back at the house and they're talking and they're, they're putting the grain away and, and Naomi's eating the roasted grain and they're having this amazing conversation. Don't miss the enthusiasm and the excitement of these two women talking about the events of the day. I can only assume that it was like Cheryl and her mom after our first date. Verse 21. <laughs> then Ruth the Moabitess said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. <laughs> Hang on there, Ruthie. That is not what he said. Notice this. It's so interesting to me. And again, this, this is kind of proof that she was not thinking romantically of Boaz, because what Ruth says to Naomi is, and, <laughs> and maybe one of his servant boys could be a husband for me. Because he said, stay close to my servants. So not only do we have all this grain now and I get to work in the field, but there's a lot of you know, eligible bachelors out there working too. Think I'm reading too much into it? Listen to what Naomi says in verse 22. She said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, 
it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids. She says, he told me to stay with the servants. Naomi says, you stay with his maids. Go out with those servants. Keep your eyes on those guys. Stay in his fields with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. Ruth, stay with the girls. Now, even at this point, I'm not sure at all that even right here that Naomi or Ruth imagined Boaz, this older, wealthy, mighty man of valor as a husband. Naomi might already be processing. After all, she is, she is a mother-in-law. So she may be processing the possibilities here but she hasn't spoken them yet, and Ruth is clueless. Ruth is still thinking, well, there's no way. I mean, this guy's, this guy's a war hero. I'm, yeah, but, but some of these other guys who work for him, and I'm an impoverished Moabitess from outside, so maybe I can be with one of these guys. You know, sometimes it takes some convincing for us actually to believe that our kinsman redeemer wants us. And I've had enough conversations with people who have a hard time believing Jesus would love me. Oh, I know Jesus loves those other people and I know God loved the world he gave his only begotten. I, I get that. But I don't know. I'm kind of unnoticed. I don't know that Jesus would love me like that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise. That's what God is doing. Ephesians 5.25 tells us Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the story that we read here, it unfolds before us. We see a kindred friend in Boab, this, or Boaz, this mighty man of valor. We see a kinsman reminder or, or a, a keepsake reminder in Ruth we see a kind of the spirit in the servant in charge of the reapers. We see a kindness that is given from Boaz, received by Ruth. And finally, we see the kinsman redeemer is realized. This guy's the guy who can help us and he's already helping us, Naomi recognizes. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple and what happens in chapter two. And by the way, to me, chapter two is kind of like the Empire Strikes Back. It's the middle chapter. Earlier this week, I read through the whole thing and I went, okay, well, that really is setting us up. It's getting us from chapter one to chapter three, which is why chapter two is always important. It's these profound statements, Margaret, that I like to make and you know, really stir people's thinking. But the chapter two is, it's Empire strike back, Strikes Back. It's, it's like the two towers of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's that middle movie, and yet it's so significant as it unfolds before us. We see Boaz go from friend to near and dear to kinsman redeemer. And by the way, that's the pattern of Jesus. He goes from friend, but as you draw near to him, he becomes dear to you, and you will realize ultimately he is my kinsman redeemer. He is my salvation. And when I get there, when I understand that, I have just been caught up in the greater plan of the harvest. Verse 23, 
So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Final thought this morning. Beyond the celebrations of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest in Israel, the actual work would continue, continued into, well, usually into June. This year, Shavuot, Pentecost, is on May 27th. May 27th, so that's the celebration of the wheat harvest. You get the prophetic implication of this? So the harvesting continues until roughly June. The harvest ends, and then what? It's summertime. Jesus said, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he is near right at the door. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. So beautiful, so profound, so much here that reminds me, Jesus, you are our kinsman, redeemer, our Boaz, our friend, our near and dear one, and the one who has saved our lives and redeemed us. And we are so like Ruth, outsiders who have a hard time even comprehending that we could be so loved and then once so loved that we could be part of such a harvest. Father, we see in Naomi Israel and know that you have a great plan of redemption, not simply for the individual Jewish people, but for the nation. Lord, this little story is profound in its implications. But my prayer this morning is, as we conclude this study really is, Spirit, would you touch the hearts of everyone here and help us to recognize your deep love, how near and dear you are to us. Father, there's among us, there are people this morning who are not convinced of the depth of your love in Jesus. And I pray they would start to recognize how close you are. Father, there are those of us who, who have followed you for a long time, but we struggle with the harvest, the whole idea that we could be used. And so we sit in the, in the shade of the, of the overhang and we're not out there in the field because we're thinking, well, what could I do? What kind of a difference could I make? And when I do anything, I just mess it up anyway. Father, give confidence to the reapers. Help us to understand that the servant of the reapers empowers us to do what we need to do and that the harvest is already laid in. And Father, I just pray for confidence for all of us in this, confidence to receive your grace, confidence to walk with Jesus, confidence to speak the name and confidence that the harvest is almost over and the summer is near. In Jesus' name, amen.